and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from the United Kingdom, Brazil, the United States, and I see you in hell from Argentina. Starting out in the United Kingdom, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, has resigned. What this means is that he will stay a member of parliament, but he will no longer be the leader of the Conservative Party, which is the governing party in the United Kingdom. He's resigned essentially in disgrace, uh, although he maintains that he has his, quote, head held high. In reality, his party has basically abandoned him after a series of scandals that just like escalated to the point that he couldn't possibly ignore them anymore. What happens now is that the members of the Conservative Party, first the actual parliamentarians, and then the people who are like card-carrying members of the party, get to decide who the new leader of the Conservative Party is, and that person will be the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. The leading candidate is a man named Rishi Sunak, uh, who used to be the second-in-command in the Conservative government, a position called the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, which is a very big budgetary, economic, sort of bureaucratic role within the British government that dates back, you know, to the Middle Ages, like a lot of other stuff in the British government. The next leading candidate in the race to replace Boris Johnson is Penny Mordaunt, who is the current Secretary of State for the United Kingdom. What's already happened is a first round of voting in the British Parliament, you know, consisting only of the actual Conservative members of Parliament. The second round is Thursday, the day that I'm releasing this podcast. After that, there will be a popular vote among the people who are card-carrying members of the Conservative Party. Those people will vote on who the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is. Currently, Modant is more popular with the party members, uh, while Sunak is more popular within the party itself. Sunak would be the first non-white Prime Minister of the United Kingdom ever, and Mordaunt would be the third female prime minister, uh, all of whom so far have been members of the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party says that they will have a new prime minister by the 5th of September. Moving on to Brazil, there has been a political murder in Brazil. And if you want to get the full story of this, check out my article on it in Jacobin. Uh, this murder happened this weekend in the southern city of Foz de Iguaçu which is a southern city next to the Iguazu Falls, which lie on the border between Argentina and Brazil. The murdered person uh, is named Marcelo Arruda, and he was murdered by Jorge José da Rocha Guaranho. Uh, Guaranho is a local prison guard, and he confronted Arruda at his birthday party. Arruda was holding his 50th birthday party uh, in Foz de Iguazu and was celebrating the well, not just himself, but also the candidacy of Lula de Silva, uh, who is the leftist candidate for president in Brazil. Aruda is a major Lula supporter. Uh, he is a member of the Workers' Party, which is Lula's party. Uh, he is not just a member. He was a local official in it. He's the local party treasurer. He actually stood for local election in that city. Uh, so Guarano saw this, and Guarano is a major Bolsonaro supporter. Uh, he confronted the party. He just like showed up and started yelling about Bolsonaro and Lula. Guarano eventually was convinced to leave, but came back with a gun, uh, still yelling about Bolsonaro and Lula. Uh, Aruda asked him to leave. Uh, Guarano said no, and a, sh a, a, a major argument ensued 
which was followed by a shootout between the two men. Aruda is uh, employed as a guard in the city, uh, while Guaragnon works at a local penitentiary as a prison guard. Uh, in that shootout, uh, Guaragnon killed Aruda, and Guaragnon is now in the hospital. The Workers' Party, the PT, has demanded a federal investigation of this crime, saying, you know, it's political murder. Like, this is the kind of thing that needs to be investigated. Uh, whereas Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, and the person that Guaranho murdered Aruda in the name of, says that, you know, this isn't his responsibility. His, his quote is literally like, a guy wears my shirt and commits a crime, what fault is it of mine? Right? You know, he, he doesn't think that he has anything to do with this. This is despite the fact that Bolsonaro has spent his entire career supporting this kind of violence. He has advocated for it. He has even pantomimed on television killing members of the Workers' Party and talked about killing them. Uh, this is nothing new in Brazil. It's part of a recent history of political violence specifically committed by members of the right wing against the left. This is on top of other political violence that's been escalating as the Brazilian uh, electoral campaign continues on this year, including, for example, last week a bomb was thrown at the stage of a Lula speaking event uh, before the presidential candidate took the stage. Uh, this forced Lula de Silva to wear a bulletproof vest in public for the first time in his career. Now, this is astonishing, considering that his career began as a union organizer under a military government, uh, and then as a, you know, socialist politician in a country where socialist politicians are seriously targeted for murder. Moving on to the United States, we now know that justices of the Supreme Court prayed with conservative lawyers ahead of their decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This is a massive breach of conduct on the part of the Supreme Court. They're not supposed to consort with uh, the lawyers that they're talking to like this, but, you know, they did it anyway because the purpose of that Roe decision was to enact conservative Christian values, and that's what they were trying to support. And finally, in the United States, moving on to the ongoing aftermath of the January 6th attempted coup of 2021. We now know that Steve Bannon, who is possibly one of the most important former Trump advisors, uh, he was the architect of Trump's victory in 2016 and Trump's first chief of staff. Uh, Bannon had been subpoenaed by the special committee uh, to investigate the coup, and he had refused to speak to them. He's actually going to be going on trial next week for his refusal to speak to them. But now he says that he will talk to them. He has some conditions, however. Uh, the most important ones are that he says that he only wants to talk to them live. He wants to be on you know, live television, live testimony. The committee doesn't really like this. They want uh, taped testimony that they can like arrange and play you know, to, to build the story that they want. Uh, Bannon, of course, wants to talk live because he's Steve Bannon. He wants to be in the live line. He wants to be in control. We really don't know exactly what this means. Does this mean that Bannon is finally turning on Trump? Or does it mean that he's trying to make a show and, you know, trying to be loyal on TV and try to, you know, run some play around the committee? We don't know. Uh, it's possible that he will speak to them uh, very soon, or it's possible that it could take several weeks. In other news regarding the January 6th Special Investigation Committee, they had a meeting on this Tuesday. That's July the 10th. This Tuesday's meeting focused on trying to link Republican lawmakers with fascists. And a lot of this is just sort of like Congress putting in the official congressional record stuff that we sort of did already know. 
like meetings and conversations between members of the uh, Republican Party and fascist organizations. You know, people like Paul Gosar, Biggs, people like that. We knew that they were talking to the Proud Boys. We also already knew, uh, but this is now in the congressional record, that people like Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, who were major players in the Trump administration, weren't just talking with Proud Boys and Oath Keepers ahead of the coup, but they were actually consulting with them about how to engage the crowd and were also literally being escorted around uh, by Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. You know, they, in addition to the bodyguards that they have because of the, you know, the roles that they play in the United States government. We know that the Oath Keepers were extremely excited about potentially being registered as an official militia by the United States government based on the Insurrection Act, uh, which is a very old law in the United States that enables the president to create militias to govern the country or to defend it against, you know, an invading force. You know, this is like one of those like old 19th century laws. Some things that we did learn, however, uh, were that a lot of the members of the Trump White House thought that the coup was a bridge too far and they didn't like it when it was happening. And so Trump was turning to a bunch of these other people, you know, like um, like the, the MyPillow executive, you know, people like that. We also know now that Trump called Mike Pence on January the 5th, the day before the coup, to threaten him again, saying like, you know, you have to hand me this election. And if you don't, something will happen. Uh, Pence refused. And in response, Trump returned a bunch of references to Pence, uh, to a speech that he was about to give ahead of the coup, right? You know, he had had those removed because he was like, oh, uh, Pence is going to do the right thing. And then when Pence didn't do what he wanted, he returned all of these threatening messages about Mike Pence to the speech ahead of a like literally bloodthirsty crowd, right? We also know now that Donald Trump ad-libbed a bunch of the references to violence that were present in the speech ahead of the coup, uh, which means that like he did it on purpose, right? You know, and obviously these are things that we already knew, but now it's in the congressional record. Now people who weren't paying attention, maybe they will pay attention. Maybe they'll know about it. But that's the problem of the whole investigation committee, right? It's, it's sort of based on the premise that something like, you know, that the truth will set you free, right? And that if we only all knew the truth about how Donald Trump was behaving around this coup, he would never be able to do it again, and he will lose power in the GOP and all that stuff. But we know that that's not going to happen. That's not how this shit works. Instead, Trump is going to deny a bunch of this stuff. He's going to say that his former aides are losers and that they're turning on him and that he won't help them when he becomes the Republican nominee again in 2024, which he almost certainly will. Uh, but his relationship to these former aides is very interesting. Uh, it seems like a lot of them are trying to jump ship, seeing that more and more of them are. But again, we also have to remember that like these people knew that the president was planning a coup and didn't didn't do anything about it the days before. They're talking about it like a year and a half later. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> these people are not heroes. They should not they should not be celebrated. Uh, they should be prosecuted. We also know uh, the last thing that we really excitingly learned uh, in the January 6th investigative committee this Tuesday was that Trump apparently called a witness that they were going to call in the next couple of weeks. So like Trump called this person on the phone personally uh, to try to pressure them 
they didn't answer. Instead, they talked to their lawyers, the lawyers talked to the committee, and the committee is referring this call to the Department of Justice, which is like some serious business, right? You know, th this is the sort of thing that could possibly bring Trump into a courtroom, you know, in the same way that like Al Capone didn't really ever get prosecuted for a lot of the like really serious mob stuff that he did, you know, like, like gun running and drug trafficking and murders and stuff. He was really brought down by the IRS, right? This is the sort of thing that Trump could get got by. All right, and uh, now I'm going to close out this episode like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I am talking about an Argentine person who I actually studied in my doctoral thesis on the connections between the Argentine right wing and conservative Catholic theology. This person is Andres Deasboz, uh, an Argentine publisher and far-right demagogue. Uh, he published the Argentine magazine Roma, which was an extremely conservative right-wing magazine in that country. Deasboz was born in Hungary in 1935 to a family that had been local nobility prior to the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, they were local nobility in Budapest, and they eventually had to flee the country after the rise of the left in Hungary, because, you know, like many local nobility, they were deeply, like, incredibly involved in right-wing shit, conservative shit, and even fascistic stuff that was happening in Hungary. Their mansion later on became the Argentine Embassy Building in Budapest. Deas both in Argentina studied law, history, and culture, and was apparently an extremely accomplished student, uh, multilingual, you know, he spoke German, French, uh, Spanish, obviously, and Hungarian, as well as several other languages. And from the 1960s onward, he was also the director, uh, which roughly translates to the, the role of, a, you know, an editor-in-chief of a conservative Catholic magazine called Roma, which published on conservative cultural issues, religious issues, uh, for example, arguing against the transition away from the traditional mass, uh, arguing for anti-communism being the center of Catholic practice. Uh, Roma is an extremely conservative publication. Uh, eventually, Deasboth moved along with a bunch of other conservative Catholics to uh, Lefebvre, uh, a conservative French theologian and priest who believed that the Catholic Church had gone astray and that the only real popes that had existed for a long time, you know, existed like hundreds of years ago, right, uh, who thought that the church was being too modern. So he left the normal Catholic Church to move to an even more conservative Catholic Church. Uh, a form of traditionalist Catholicism. Uh, Despoth continued to edit Roma and to be a public intellectual in Argentina until his death this week in history, the 12th of July, 1998, of cancer. So, Andres Despoth, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please tell your friends, family, colleagues, and comrades about the podcast. You can also check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out, all one word. That's also my Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H I S T of the right. And the podcast itself, fascism 15. Again, that's 15 spelled out. All right. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next week.